you know, that's one thing about our fellowship. Um, I always enjoy the feedback. Um, it's always encouraging, the encouragement. If I knew that waiting would have resulted in this. Many of you are familiar with Michael Jordan. He is a Hall of Fame basketball player and um, arguably the greatest player to have ever played the game. In the 80s, he signed a contract with Nike to make shoes known as Air Jordans. And where I'm from, we call them Jays. So for the rest of this story, I'm going to use Jays, but I'm referring to Air Jordans. And in my community, whenever a new pair of Jordans were released, <clears throat> there was just this huge line. Think of it as Call of Duty. If, if some of you are into video games, like, it had that sort of impact. There's these huge lines of people waiting for shoes. Now, the trick about these lines was at any given store, they probably only had about 10 pairs of shoes in your given size. So they had like 10 pair of nines, 10 pair of tens, 10 pair of 11s. They did not have a lot. There was no way the amount of people in the line was going to get their shoes. And Miami, I believe, of all the amazing things, this is one of those, like, it's, all, it's, it's kind of encouraging, but it's also kind of dark. Miami, this, the, the, the water's there building you a hustling spirit. You just want to make a little bit more than what you're supposed to make. And so part of the hustle became when I got into my 11th grade year was you buy a shoe, you sell a shoe. Because people are waiting in line and they really want this shoe. And so you just decide whether or not you really want it. You're like, if I don't really want it, I know someone's going to pay a little bit more than what this shoe is actually worth. And so I went one morning when the Jordans 13s were dropping and that was the plan. I didn't like how they looked. I wasn't going to buy them and wear them for myself. But I'm like, I know someone's going to buy it. And, and Jordans typically cost between $175 to $200. My goal was to upcharge it to $325. So I was going to take the shoes and sell it for $325. And so as soon as the store opened, I got my pair of shoes. They, uh, as soon as I heard, we are sold out, I, I stood out there and I was walking and I was like, size 10, 325, size 10, 325, size 10, 325. Then I heard someone say, size 10, 225, size 10, 225, size 10. So after 15 minutes, I realized I wasn't going to get a sale here. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to put it away. I'm going to have it in a location where in the next two weeks, someone's going to be eager to have this shoe, and I'm going to sell it to them. I'm going to give them an opportunity to get these shoes. So anyhow, I walk away, and one of my buddies who was with me trying to sell shoes as well stayed and hung around, hung around for about an hour and a half. And then when we finally reconnected at the local park where we play basketball, he said, guess what? I made $1,000. $1,000. $1,000. He sold his um, Jordans to a wife, to the wife of a major league baseball player. And we all were there. There was like four of us who tried to sell shoes and none of us sold but him. And we we're like, How, what? And he was like, just waiting, man. Just waiting. You see, he was in the habit of waiting. He was the only one in my peer group who didn't have a car, so he had to catch the bus. He had to wait for the bus consistently. Bless his heart. He was the only, and when everyone went DSL, you guys remember DSL internet? Yeah. He was still on dial-up. <laughs> so, you know, when it was time to use the internet, it just kind of slow. 
you can go get coffee, you can go do a whole bunch of things, and then the, finally the webpage load up. And he worked in concessions at the stadium, so he just sat in line the whole day serving people, just never moving. We didn't know it then, but now we know it now. That was spiritual formation. He was learning how to be patient. He was learning how to wait. And so for him to wait two hours was nothing for everyone else who was used to going so quickly. You see, this is what the Jews have in mind when they're waiting for the Messiah. Like God was trying to form a people who could be patient for the Messiah, who could be patient for his returning. And for Christians, we are on the other end of it, being patient for Christ's second coming, where Christ will come again and reclaim everything that's his. Now, it's important that we understand that this waiting, this is, in theory, what the Christmas season is supposed to be about. Not about all the amazing gifts and all the materialism. It's not supposed to be about that. It's supposed to be about waiting on Jesus, waiting for Jesus to return. But this waiting is not like a passive waiting. It's an active waiting. Mm. You know, Jules recently gave birth to our second son, and we were doing a lot of things to prepare for the coming of this second child. There was nothing we could do to speed up the process, praise God. But we were preparing for the coming child. And, and you know, what, the, what does that look like? Think about, for, especially for a lot of you who've been able to witness mothers give birth, that takes preparation, the nutrients, talking to people, coming up with plans, how we're going to do work, what we're going to do with work, every single thing in between so that when the child comes, we're ready. And so no one would ever look at pregnancy as people are just chilling, waiting nine months until the baby shows up. It is an active waiting. And so how do we walk in the way of life as we wait for Jesus to return? How do we do that? We're going to look at Luke chapter 2. Next week, Connor is going to do the birth narrative. I, I specifically skipped over the birth narrative of Jesus because it's Christmas Eve, and why don't we hear about the birth narrative of Jesus on Christmas Eve? So we're going to talk about the response to Jesus' birth here. And so in Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verse 22 to 24. When the time came for purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, everyone, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two pigeons. So where are we in this story? Jesus was just born. We, 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 a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the two different songs. And now Jesus' family is coming up to the temple to present Jesus. It's important that we understand that this presentation was a ritual that the Israelites participated in because it kind of tethered the family to this ongoing narrative of what God was doing among them. You see, Jerusalem is the location of the temple, the very presence of God. And so every firstborn child of an Israelite, firstborn male child of an Israelite was supposed to go to Jerusalem and say, this child is going to be God's child, just like um, Samson, and will carry this story moving forward. This child will carry this narrative. Exodus chapter um, 13, verse 2. Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belong to me or their male or animal. That's Exodus chapter 13, verse 2. Then we're going to jump down to 13. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. That's not encouraging. Every 
firstborn among your sons. And in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8. But if you cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will atone for her and, will make, and, and she will be clean. I read these two passages because it's really important. Jesus' family comes here for one purpose, to dedicate Jesus' life to God. Even though they heard the prophetic word of the angels, they heard the prophetic singing of Mary and Zacharias. They're like, this is really important that we as a family come together and dedicate this child for the purpose of God. As God wanted. And in Leviticus, the reason they brought two, um, two pigeons was because they did not have great financial means. Which is humbling when you think about the creator of all the world, like it says in John. He comes from a family without the financial means to give the best sacrifice he possibly could have. You see, these rituals were known as redeeming. And so to redeem someone in Israel was about giving the child to God for God's purposes. How do we live as the quiet people of the land? we got to dedicate ourselves to the purposes of God. I think there's something powerful. You know, because of the um, Reformation, there was a separation between the Catholic Church and the rest of the Protestant churches. And I think we have become super suspicious of traditions. And I think some of those traditions we should be suspicious of. But we have gotten away from things that actually help us symbolically understand what we are doing in this moment. I know um, some of you watch basketball. I'm a basketball fan. I just mentioned Jordan. I'm going to mention the competition for Michael Jordan's spot on the throne, LeBron James. And before every single game, you know what LeBron James does? He puts the little stuff that keeps his hands super dry and he tosses it up in the air. And you wonder, what, what is that for? What is it even doing? For LeBron, he's like, that means it's game time. Now everything else, all distractions are all cut off. I am zoned in this game right here. Tim Tebow, shout out to the Florida Gators. Tim Tebow, every time before the game started, he went into the end zone and started praying. And he said the, for him, Psalm 23 was like the battle cry to get on the football field and hurt people. I don't know if that's what that's communicating, but that's what it was for him. He did it. That was a tradition. I think we have become so suspicious of traditions that sometimes we forget what they help remind us to. They participate our hearts, mind, and our bodies in these traditions. What are some traditions that you could add in your life to remind yourself that you have dedicated yourself and your family to the Lord's purposes? Yeah. I, won't come up with, I won't come up with it for you just so you won't be like, you see, this church is becoming Catholic. I, you come up with whatever your tradition is, and you let it work for what your family needs. Now, if you say to yourself, I don't need that. I just wake up every morning. Amen. God bless you. But for a lot of us, we do need reminders. Let's keep reading here. And Luke chapter 25, Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting on the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts where the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the customs of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. 
The father's child and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and the sword will pierce your soul too. In Jerusalem, the family encounters this man, Simeon. And as I mentioned before, when we kicked off this series, there were a whole bunch of sects in um, first century Israel. You had the Essenes, you had the Zealots, you had the Pharisees, and all these sects had an idea of what they needed to do to be able to restore Israel back to the Israelites. Some of it was rooted and tethered to scripture, some of it was not. And so you have in this unique situation a guy named Simeon, and he is devoted. He is a religious man, they, they describe. And a quote from William Barclay. They had no dream of violence and of power and of armies with banners. They believed in a life of constant prayer and quiet watchfulness until God should come. All their lives, they waited quietly and patiently upon God. What he's describing is a group that um, Jewish writers would call the quiet of the land. These were men and women who, who didn't necessarily belong to any particular sect, but they were just devoted to God. They were like, God, we know your promises are going to come true one day, even if we die. We know your promises are going to come true one day, so we're going to commit ourselves to you. We're not going to join the sect. We're not going to try to acquire political strength. We're not going to try to take Rome by violence. We're going to trust in you. They had the story of the um, splitting of the Red Sea in their hearts. They're like, God, you're the one who could split this, so we're going to reach out to you and remind you and pray that you hear our voice the way you heard our ancestors' voice in the past. And Simeon represents that. You see, when Simeon is speaking here, Part of what this says here is he's waiting on the consolation of Israel. I mentioned before, Luke thinks all of us know the Old Testament really well. He's like, you eat, sleep, breathe this. So when I mention consolation, you're like, of course, Isaiah 40, he's talking about. Now, for those of us not familiar with the Old Testament, we're like, I didn't think about Isaiah 40. But Luke says, oh, this group is just waiting. I just made the connection for your heart emotionally to turn to Isaiah 40. They didn't have like the scrolls. They had it just in their heart. They knew the scriptures. And you know what Isaiah 40 is about? It's about the Israelites returning from exile. They were just, Isaiah predicts that the Israelites are going to go into exile. And in Isaiah 40, he, he also predicts that the people are going to come out of exile one day. Let's go to Isaiah 40, verse 1. We're going to just read the verse 3 verses. Isaiah 40, verse 1 through verse 3. Isaiah 40, verse 1 through verse 3. Comfort, comfort my people, says, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Isaiah 40, verse 1 through verse 3. That her sins have been paid for. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight his paths. Uh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Comfort, comfort. The world needs a word of encouragement when it comes to comfort. And you see what's most, most interesting about this situation is I, 
Simeon is like, I'm waiting for when God is saying the exile is over. You see, they weren't they weren't in their land yet. They weren't controlling the land the way they envisioned. And so he's like, I'm praying day and night. I'm doing this. I'm, I'm devoted religiously to God. I'm doing everything. And I'm just waiting for when the Lord is going to show show up and give us a comfort. And the Holy Spirit gave him gave him a word of encouragement and said, you will see the salvation of the Lord. Now, again, anyone in the first century, if you would have said even now today, if I said you guys are going to see the salvation of God and I showed you a baby, you fired up or not fired up? All of you like not the baby. <laughs> if Jules was to pull out on Brian right now, you'd be like, he's a cute baby. but I don't know who he's going to save right now. <laughs> he can't even roll over yet. Bless Brian's heart. Um, but he told. And so it, it, it's powerful what, I, um, what Simeon was able to pick up here. Simeon was able to understand that Jesus was the comfort. Jesus was what God had promised. In verse 3, when it says, a voice calling in the wilderness, that's a prophecy about John the Baptist's ministry, saying, I'm going to make way for the Lord. Everyone in the first century more than likely would have thought, not a David figure, but the actual Lord, the God of Israel, was going to show up. And John the Baptist does say the God of Israel shows up, but manifested in the person of Jesus. You see... The consolation for Israel that they were hoping for is found in Luke 24. So I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. We're going to end the book here, and then we're going to keep going back to remember. Luke 24, verse 45 through uh, 47. Luke 24, verse 45 through 47. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and raise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Israel was going to get their sins forgiven. The nations were going to get their sins forgiven. Sin prevents us from having an intimate and close relationship with God. And so when Jesus' ministry begins, he's saying, the comfort of Israel is here. All people who seek to be forgiven by the risen Lord will be forgiven. You guys have no clue. Maybe you do. But sometimes I don't feel like we understand how powerful it is that at any given moment today, if we sin against the living God, we could we can be forgiven if we seek it. God is not like this person who's like, oh, you want to be forgiven? Let me think about it. Did you really learn your lesson? He won't be mocked. But we could get forgiven for anything at any given moment. You know, sometimes the hardest part of seeking forgiveness is understanding that God will forgive us. Because sometimes we struggle with, I wouldn't forgive that. And you're like, thank God his thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. His thoughts are much higher than your ways. And so Simeon here is waiting. He's waiting. It's easy. Some of us have been Christians for a long time to stop kind of waiting. Like most of us woke up this morning and did not think the Lord was going to return. If we did, we probably wouldn't be here, right? Like, I don't want to hear you talk about the Lord returning, Steve. I'm going to see it. Most of you are making decisions financially because you don't think the Lord is going to return. I, that's an important part of the Christian story, that we believe in a Lord that can come back at any moment. Now, I think groups have gone extreme and, you know, they've like sold everything. And they're just like, yo, he's coming back October 13, 2000 and whatever. And every time they do one of these things, they fail. But I do think there has to be a posture in our heart that we understand that this isn't all we see and we have to live in preparation of his coming. Not in an anxiety kind of way, but again, think of pregnancy in an active, joyful kind of way. 
Like, for those of you who've experienced childbirth, I know the Joneses are currently going through it. There is an anticipation to want to see your child. Now, there's also a degree to which you're kind of like, let's make sure it is nine months, though. <laughs> let's not get it any earlier than we need it to be. And there's a degree of that. And this is what was supposed to comfort the people that God is sending his son to first and foremost forgive. You see, that's a guaranteed deposit. Our forgiveness will transport us to a place where we can start living in that reality right now. You know, the longer we've been a Christian, I feel like the harder it is for us to really live a life of waiting. When I first got baptized, I had zero understanding of theology, so I didn't know why we were waiting. And then someone told me, if we baptize everyone in the world, Jesus will come back. And my second day hearing that, I went on campus, two people were like, I'll never follow Jesus. So I'm like, I guess he's never coming back. My theology was broken. <laughs> I needed refinement. But it gets harder the longer, because we start to, we start, I've mentioned this before, the waters that we're swimming in is secular. Most of us day to day don't think we're going to encounter God, like um, Daniel's story, like the Holy Spirit is going to interrupt. Most of us don't think the Holy Spirit's going to interrupt. Most of us don't think the Lord's going to return in this lifetime. And we're making decisions like that. But I think we, we lose something. We lose something of who we can be. Simeon was able to not be deceived and was not joining one of these different religious parties because he was focused on God coming back, on Jesus coming and fulfilling what he would do. Let's go to uh, 1 Samuel 13. This is an, this is an example of a story of waiting. 1 Samuel 13, beginning in verse 8. The actual verse right there. Verse 8 through 14. I love this story because I feel like there's, I, this is America in a nutshell. This is all of us who live here. Now, some of you have grown in the way of Jesus, so this may not be you. 1 Samuel 13, verse 8 through 14. He waited seven days, and the time set by Samuel but Samuel did not come to Gilgah, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring to me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as, he's, as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and the Philistines were assembling at mismatch, I thought, now that the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgah, I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God that the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul did what any of us would have done. You know, like, who loves waiting? He's like, there's a war about to go down. I'm not going to wait till the last second. Now, the challenge with Saul was he wasn't a priest. He wasn't supposed to be doing this. But he's like, I'm going to take it into my own hands, and I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. I'm not going to wait on answered prayer. I'm not going to wait on a response. I'm not going to wait for the Spirit to guide me. I'm just going to go ahead and do what I got to do. And so when Samuel shows up, he tells him, all right, you did what you had to do. Now God will do what he has to do. And take your kingdom from you. What prevents us from waiting on God? What prevents us waiting in the big picture, waiting on the Lord? And even in the, 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 the micro, fear. Man, I think fear characterizes too much of what we do consistently. Like we make too many decisions out of fear. 
And again, I'm not saying let's go the ostrich effect and act like what's going on out there isn't happening. But sometimes you have to understand when you're watching the news, they want to fill you with fear. They want to fill you with fear and they want you to make whatever decision you got to make based off of fear. That could prevent us from waiting on God to return. But that can also prevent us from waiting on God's timing with when it's time to purchase a home, when it's time to do something amazing. Fear can fill us and and prevent us from trusting God. Unbelief. Sometimes we just don't believe. Like if I say, hey, man, you know what? You're thinking about a new job. Take some time to pray about it. You know, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to pray. God, I want a new job. Bam, done. Instead of being like, God, guide me in this process. Let me wait on you. Man, you know, the crazy thing was Saul, he waited seven days. That was pretty fired up. Only if he could have got one more day, right? Because Samuel seemed to have been right around the corner. As soon as he was done, he was like, hey, what are you doing? Like, just, he was just right there. He was just right there. All he had to do was wait just a little bit longer. Go get a sandwich. I think sometimes we get so, um, so caught up in unbelief that we're like, I'm not going to wait a second longer. And in an age of anxiety, unbelief runs rampant. And we make too many decisions. And then there's apathy. Some of us just don't care. We don't care what God's plan is or God's design or what God is calling us to do as an individual or as a community. And that becomes challenging because then you end up like the Zealots who's like, you know how we're going to take back Israel? We're going to fight the Romans. Or you become like the Herodians. You know how we're going to take back Israel? We're going to be just like them. Or you become like the Sadducees. You know how we're going to take back Israel? We're going to get more money than them, and then we're going to buy up all the property. Or you end up like the Pharisees. You know how we're going to take back Israel? Make sure everyone follows every single law, even though we can't actually do it either. You start going in these different places because you stop caring about what God wants, and you start caring about what you want. You see, Simeon was waiting and waiting and waiting, and I'm almost certain that probably led him to become the devout man that he was. Every morning waking up, praying, God, you said, I'll see your consolation. Um, I don't know when he got the promise. Can you imagine if he got at 22? The way the story reads, he seems like a pretty old man. Can you imagine if he got at 22, you'll see the Lord's salvation? And he's telling all his buddies, I'm going to see the Lord's salvation. I'm going to see it. 45, I'm going to see the Lord's salvation. 50, now his buddies are like, I thought you were going to see the Lord's salvation. I thought you were going to see the Lord's salvation. 70, I still believe. I still believe. I'm still praying. I'm still seeking. I still believe. You see, the quiet of the land, these people fill themselves with God, and so their hope is never circumstantial. Their hope is rooted in something powerful. Our present cultural moment replaces our hope for melancholy. We're just kind of, I don't know. I don't know. We do know. We serve the living God. You see, with big cosmic things is where it needs to start. We all have to make a deep-hearted conviction that we believe that Jesus will return one day. We believe that he will find his church faithful and that we will be numbered with the faithful. From that point, then we can start trusting God on the, the small minutia of everyday life where we're like, God, I'm going to trust you from here. Yeah. Like We have to trust the living God. And so Simeon's devotion, I mean, his, his, his faithfulness was born out of deep devotional life. I'm almost certain if we sat down with him, he would say, I meditated on the goodness of God. I meditated. I studied on those passages. I didn't move quickly. I meditated on the goodness of God. I think some of us, you know, we've given up on the the quiet time project. And here's why. 
in the past, those of you who, who, who became a disciple in this fellowship probably 2010 and back, you felt like you weren't a real Christian if you didn't read your Bible today. And someone made you feel guilty and blah, 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 blah and you felt that. And that was discouraging. And then someone wise came by and said, you know, actually nowhere in the Bible does it say you need to read the Bible every day. Psalm 1 says you need to meditate a day and night, but you don't got to actually read it. And so you took that freedom and you swung the pendulum like we all do. And you say, you know what? I don't feel bad. Okay, I ain't read my Bible in a month. Jesus still loves me. He's kind. The gospel is true. I don't need to touch this. This that stuff like religious, man. I mean, I'm gonna read it when I read it. God loves me. True. But what you don't understand is if you don't fill your mind with the words of God, other things will fill that space and fill that void. You don't need to do it legalistically where you're ashamed of yourself if you missed it. But it should be consistent. I would argue. And this is, this is proven in so many sociologists of the religious bent and non-religious bent have shown that this is true. Most people, most born-again Christians, Protestant, this is not necessarily connected to our fellowship, spend 35 minutes a week with God outside of the Sunday experience. Millennials spend six hours a day on their phone through social media and um, different content. Gen X and boomers spend the same amount of time watching Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. What you put in will control what comes out. Guys, I'm not encouraging you to, again, feel guilty, but there has to be a degree to which you're counterbalancing it. Think about your fellowship times. I could guarantee you, if you are consistently praying and reading, when you're fellowshipping with people, that stuff comes out. If you're not consistently praying, reading, filling yourself up with the Spirit, when you're fellowshipping, that never comes up. It feels awkward even to talk about it. Like, oh, what did you read in your quiet time? Oh, and you're thinking like, man, last time I read was two weeks ago, and it was the Daily Bread app. No, no hating on the Daily Bread app, but it was the Daily Bread. And it was that little scripture. And I think it was one of the Psalms that said, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. And so, you know, I thought about, man, I got a lot to rejoice in. Look, I'm married. I got middle, 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 middle class and... I didn't pay taxes this year. I'm rejoicing. And then, you know, you're like, you're like, I'm not even remotely rejoicing in what Paul was talking about when he said that. And so they said the Psalms, but it was actually um, Philippians. You know, but it's just, yeah. we're rushing through. The quiet of the land slowed down long enough. Think about Simeon. He was able to recognize God's salvation in a baby. I don't know in that season if I would have recognized God's salvation in a baby. I'm not slowed down enough to be able to recognize God's salvation in a baby. Now, prayerfully, I would, but who knows? And then we need to prioritize, if we're going to be the sort of people who can meditate on God's word, we need to prioritize our deepest desires over our strongest desires. Mm-hmm. Our deepest desire, prayerfully, for everyone in here who said Jesus Lord is to know Jesus, to be known by Jesus, to be in fellowship with Jesus. That's your deepest desire. My strongest desire may be I want to eat a sandwich. My strongest desire, I want a new house. My strongest desire, I want unity in my house. My strongest desire, I want no one to hate me. All of those are strong desires, and we're going to have these. But as followers of Jesus, we yield to our deepest desire. Like, what decisions in my life will produce the way of Jesus in my life? You see, the Spirit urged and ushered um, Simeon into the temple courts to see um, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. And so when Simeon held the child, he wasn't holding a what? What is salvation? He was holding a who? And the who is Jesus. You see, he saw in Jesus the fulfillment of God's promises. I believe 
Jesus reveals himself to us consistently, but we don't slow down enough. I believe there are multiple times Jesus is reminding us of his salvation, reminding us of, of his promises, but we don't slow down enough. You see, Joseph and Mary were amazed by what Simeon said about their child. And Simeon's conversation with Mary is tricky, too, because he's like, he's going to cause many to rise and fall. And he's going to cause you some challenges, Mary. I am always concerned, big picture, when the teachings of Jesus does not offend people to some extent. That means you have made a Christ in your image. We're going to read through the Gospel of Luke. His teaching on money is radical. It is radical the way Jesus wants us to use money. How Jesus addresses sinners and how Jesus addresses people not close to God is totally different than my experience of church when I see it. How Jesus addresses how we should treat our enemies, love our enemies. Jesus says, be kind to the ungrateful. You, hear, you just heard me say, be neutral to the ungrateful. He said, be kind to the ungrateful. Can you imagine if you gave me $10 and I was like, kick rocks. And then you continue to be kind. No, you'd be like, no, no, no. Old Testament time. Where's the lightning? And you, 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 you're going to be like, no, man. You know, Jesus wasn't that nice. Remember the, the flipping the, 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 the temple scene? You know, we find the Jesus we need yeah. instead of the Jesus that presents in the scriptures. Like anytime we get fired up, we, we always know how to find that Jesus, right? Like where's the flipping table Jesus? That's, what, that's what's needed right now. That happened once. Once. The other teachers outweigh that. I think we should really meditate deeply on when it's time to flip a table. And focus on the other components of who Jesus is as a person. But we won't get there if we're not like the quiet of the land. Focus on prayer, scripture reading. We won't get there. Because our Christianity is going to resemble our culture. And so Mary was challenged by Jesus because he didn't resemble the Messiah that she wanted either. Which is always challenging for a mother. Um, There's a quote from Stanley Harawas. He's like, "Um, you never marry the right person and you never get the kids you want. And what he's alluding to is whoever you think you married, they're going to be whoever they are actually. Versus who you think you can make them to be, right? Like they'll never be the person who puts away their clothes after they're done working out. They just won't do it. And then you'll die. <laughs> you know, they'll die a thousand deaths. You know, you want your kid to be the you want your kid to be the person who's gonna be like, excuse me, open doors, blah, blah, blah. The next thing you know, your kid doesn't ever shut the doors, he walk in. You're like, you are not a prince. You need to shut these doors, man. Like, what is wrong? <laughs> I bring that up to say sometimes what we do to what we want out of our spouse and our children, we try to do to Jesus to make him fit our image. Let Jesus be who he is and let us follow him. No matter how challenging that may be. You see, the rescue of Jesus is ideal, but it may not be what we want, how we want him to do it. And that's okay. We're going to trust in him. We need to we need to allow him to guide us in our personal lives, whether with our wealth, with our time. And if he guides us, he will lead us to the abundant life. Now, again, sometimes when I say abundant life, you all are envisioning something. And I pray you envision what Jesus describes as the abundant life, not the American dream. And Mary was challenged by that. And that's okay. 
You see, what keeps us from being the quiet of the land is this active waiting, like being people who actively wait on the Lord. Let's go to Luke chapter 2, verse 36 to 38. There was a prophet named Anna, the daughter of Penuel. Well, shout out to that name, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. That's like her description, right? She was very old. <laughs> they gave up on aging her. <laughs> she lived with her husband seven years um, after her marriage, and then she was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. After, after the family's encounter with Simeon, Anna walks up to them, this mature woman. She was married her first seven years of life, and then she lost her husband. We don't know how. And then she spent the rest of her time just in complete devotion at the temple, worshiping day and night. Yes, I believe she went home. I think Luke is just using figurative speech here. So I think she went home. I think she did other things in between. But he's just saying she was a constant presence in this location. And she never stopped praying. And she approaches this family. And she's like, this is what I've been praying for. Look, the salvation's here. She's 84 years old. And she is zealous. And she is fired up when she sees Jesus. She's like, I want to tell everyone about him. She recognizes God's blessing. Her life circumstances didn't hold her back. One of, one of our biggest challenges sometimes, we allow our life circumstances to hold us back. You know, and I've shared this a, a year ago, but I, and I probably need to be a little bit more consistent. We probably don't have the most developed understanding of the richness and powerfulness of singleness in our church. To be single is a gift from God if you so choose it. And it's not a lesser role. You see, the scriptures teaches that human beings are created for intimacy and connection um, with God themselves and with one another. And marriage is one framework where that could take place. But singleness is another. And while singleness may be voluntarily chosen or involuntarily imposed, temporary or long term, a sudden event or a gradual unfolding, Christian singleness can be understood within two distinct callings. And that is the, the vow of celibacy. And this is important because I think in our fellowship, we don't have more people make vows of celibacy because we don't honor singleness for what it is. There are some people who legit don't want to get married, but they feel weird that they say they don't want to get married. Because we're like, what's wrong with you? You don't want to get married? Man, what about the, the, the DT Heart and Soul? Check it out. Everyone's getting married there. Or what about the, the Facebook group? Go on here. And we don't make people just feel like, man, I'm comfortable Knowing that my life will be a sign of the resurrection, that I trust in Jesus more than I trust in being in a romantic relationship. Yeah. And so I want those brothers and sisters moving forward. If you feel like, yeah, you know, I just want to be single and I'm OK with that. I want us to honor that. Yeah. I want us to lift that up. There's nothing wrong with someone who desires not to be married. Jesus, Paul even speaks of it as a gift. That someone would choose to not want to be married. But then there is the other um, those who are dedicated to celibacy, they have not found the right person yet. And they're in this season. And we want to make it an encouragement that they can experience intimacy in this fellowship without having to have romantic connections with anyone. It's very important that we understand that. 
You see, Anna didn't live her life as if she was waiting on life. She devoted herself to prayer. She devoted herself to the community of believers in that temple area. I'm almost certain she lived a vibrant life. If we were to talk to Anna today, she wouldn't be like, man, you know what? I lost my husband and it's been 80 plus years and I wish I got it. She'd be like, no. I was worshiping. I was praying. I was loving. And I think we have to understand, and when I say we, me as a minister, because most of the ministers who preach to you guys have been married for X number of years. And so it's easy just to have your myopic view of everything. And we don't want that. We want a robust understanding. The, the, the two primary teachers of Christianity, you know what their marital status was? Single. We got Jesus and we got Paul. You know, bless Peter's heart. He doesn't even shout out his wife. We don't know her name. I'm pretty sure she was an amazing sister. But we don't know her name. He never found opportunities to be like, and my amazing wife. You know, when we do welcomes, we all have to say, your amazing wife. He'd get up there. He's just like Peter <laughs> and you. <laughs> we don't know her name. In the Upside Down play, they gave her a name, but I can't remember it. Abby. Shout out to Abby. Um, but we need to live. We need to understand that. And I'm speaking more to singles because I think Anna's story is a powerful story of a vibrant life. And we want to create spaces where we could cultivate healthy singleness. What is healthy singleness? That they experience intimacy. You know, sometimes we're like, hey, you know, this is a family thing. And like, let's not invite. We need to figure out how we could work this all out. Church is so confusing, but yet it's one big family. And we need to make it work. And I'm pretty sure at these services, these temple gatherings, when they were doing these parties, Anna was in the middle of the dance floor killing it. <laughs> killing it. They're sacrificing something, and she's like, we are forgiven. And, you know, she's just like, you, I'm almost certain if we would have approached Anna, we would have never thought she was waiting for anything other than the Lord. And I think the same is true even for us as um, folks who are not, who, who, who are not single, but we are married. Like, are we living like we're waiting, or are we living as if... God is going to do something, and there's an excitement in our devotion. You see, Anna used her time of worship and prayer day in and night for X number of years to be evangelistic when she saw Jesus. When she saw the baby, she's like, I started telling everyone else. Hey, I saw this baby. That's the redemption of Israel. Yo, the baby over there, Mary and Joseph's boy, that's the redemption of Israel. Yeah, the kid born in the manger, that's the redemption of Israel. She was excited. She was thrilled. You know, one of my prayers is when I get older, when, when um, if the Lord allows me to get to my 80s, you know, Brian and Stephen will be in their 60s. I want to be the most encouraging, mature dude they ever seen in their life. They're going to be like, man, that old man, LaFrance, he's just like, oh, so he's fired up. I love everything. This is great. What does he do the first three hours of his day? He prays for everyone. You know, one of my job, one of my dreams when I retire, I don't care how big the church is, I want to pray for every single member every morning. Once I retire, once I don't have anything else I got to do in that morning. <laughs> I want to pray for every single member. That's one of my dreams, one of my desires. I want to come in and be the biggest cheerleader, no matter how awful the message is. <laughs> they could like stink it out and I'm just going to walk up to them and be like, yo, I love you. You're going to take it even further than my generation did. And that's just because I have hope. You may not take it further, but I'm hopeful. <laughs> I just want to be such an encouragement to the next generation. Yeah. And I'm grateful for the Annas and Simeons in my life, the more mature men and women 
who were that encouragement and who still are that encouragement. But that's a dream of mine. You see, Anna's evangelism was born out of a deep devotional life. By the time she recognized Jesus, it wasn't like she thought, what's my strategy to talk about this baby? She was so deeply devoted that this flowed out of her mouth. Her worship nurtured her evangelistic activity. And I want us to have that sort of worship. You know, the most radical thing we could do is be consistent. Anna was consistent for years. Not a day, not a week, years. Day and night, praying and fasting. She probably was the slimmest sister in the church. Years. In the temple, they read the scriptures. She sat at the feet of all those people reading the scriptures. She was a prophetess. She was out there preaching something to someone. Years. The quiet of the land are deeply devoted to the ways of God. See, Anna joined with Simeon and joyfully declared that this exile, this comfort, comfort is coming. And, you know, they died probably before they even got to see Jesus do anything in his ministry. They just saw it from a distance and welcomed it, kind of like Moses. So summary, how do we walk in the way of life? That's what this series is called, as we wait for Jesus to return. We dedicate ourselves to God's purposes. Like Jesus and his family did with the, um, with the redemption, we dedicate ourselves to God's purposes. We develop a deep devotional life of silence, like Simeon, prayer, Bible study. This will lead to a life that yields to our deepest desires over our strongest desires. And then we do that consistently. That's the hardest part of discipleship is consistent, consistency. We are plagued in our generation by this demon called boredom. And none of us want to be taken captive by boredom. But there's a huge part of spiritual discipline that is want to even above enjoyment, if you will. And I think over time it becomes joyful, but we have to kind of get past that initial. I need this to feel like a mountaintop experience all the time. You see, the good news is that Jesus would usher in his kingdom. That's the good news, that he would usher in his kingdom. And it's a present reality for all of us to participate in right now. And it's his kingdom and his way of life that will give us the life that we're seeking, that we're truly seeking our deepest desires. And so I want to encourage us as we reflect. Let's think about what needs to change in this holiday season as we're waiting. We're not waiting for Santa Claus. None of the kids are in here? None of the kids are here. He ain't real. Santa Claus is not real, man. <laughs> Did I ruin that for you, Anthony, or you been you that? Okay. Okay. Thanks, bro. <laughs> He's not real, man. We're not waiting for Santa Claus. We're waiting for the living God. We're waiting for him to show up in Jesus. Let's reflect on what needs to change as we wait. Let's be the sort of people who are prepared. We're actively waiting for the return of Jesus. Let's imitate the quiet of the land and have a deep personal devotional life that turns into community worship. Um, let's reflect.